Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Matthew King, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Riverside, and winner of the AAR Book Award in Textual Studies. He's here to speak to us about his book, Ocean of Milk, Ocean of Blood, A Mongolian Monk in the Ruins of the Qing Empire, published with Columbia University Press. Congratulations, Matt, and thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and what a what a title that is! It's uh, striking, and the the book cover as well. It really brings you in already. Thank you. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of listeners may not be familiar with this subject or this this geographic region. I'm wondering if you could just start off a little bit about thinking about Buddhism in this post Qing uh, Mongolian sphere. Uh, what are what are some of the key things we need to know about? Buddhist religious life in early 20th century to begin to understand your project? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, well, I think that what we need to understand um, are the sort of geographies of scholarship about that period. So there is scholarship about the very deeply braided connections between the Qing, Qing Empire and um, one of the, by that period, dominant traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, the Geluk tradition, the tradition of the Dalai Lamas, which had this relationship with the Qing since the 17th century, um, and that was really um, responsible for spreading mass monasticism, scholastic culture, literacy, medical knowledge, you know, philosophical traditions, um, all kinds of literary and intellectual traditions, um, not only into uh, China and to the capitals of the Qing and into the Manchu court and so on, but also across all Mongolian societies, um, you know, Eastern Tibet, the sort of Sino-Mongolian Tibetan frontiers, um, and really all the way up to uh, Siberia and eventually in the early 20th century to St. Petersburg. So there's this sort of trans-Asia um, formation, this sort of Qing-Geluk tradition formation that was political, was, you know, institutional, but it was also a frame by which all sorts of disparate peoples uh, understood themselves in relationship to one another and in relationship to global history. And so by the time of the collapse of the Qing in 1911, 1912, um, from a Buddhist perspective, these monastic perspectives, there was a very large historiographical tradition of writing world history through this sort of synthetic Qing frame. And so this idea of synthesis, of synthesizing languages, previously disparate histories, for example, of China, of the Mongol Empire, of Tibet, of India, of Europe, um, of ideologies, for example, twining, you know, Buddhist um, philosophical history with new encounters with Taoism or Confucianism or Christianity um, and so on. Um, you know, my book sort of begins at the apex of this by then maybe two century long synthetic tradition by a very particular social group that my book explores, which have been, I think, understudied, which are these sort of these go-between monks who were working writing in Tibetan, speaking various Mongolian dialects, in many cases speaking Manchu and Chinese also. You know, these guys were, were talking to Jesuits in Beijing and then walking back, you know, to the Himalayan Plateau or up to the Gobi Desert and making sense of Indian canonical works in new ways. 
So it was really, in some ways, I don't use the word renaissance in my book at all, but maybe for a general audience, it's a um, that's a useful frame. And it's not one, though, that's tied to a kind of epochal contact with Europe as starting the modern. That's the whole point of my book, is that this is not a kind of Buddhist, modernist, progressive story. This is like a slow-burning, synthetic um, uh, history wherein Buddhist monastic scholars, very particular one from these frontier regions, um, were basically making sense of the world in radically new ways. And um, so by the time we get to the 20th, early 20th century and the collapse of the Qing, my book starts with the question of, you know, sort of how did monks who were, who inherited this vast tradition make sense of the ruins of the Qing? In other words, how did they use a historiography that depended upon the Qing-Geluk synthesis to make sense of a world wherein the, the Qing was absent, politically, at least. And in very short order, uh, new revolutionary governments were not only antagonistic, but exacting profound state violence against these, against these monks and their institutions. So it's sort of a crisis of history type project in the midst of Asia's first socialist revolution. I was going to ask this later, but I, I think it kind of ties in with what you're talking about, the, these tensions between history and modernity, and uh, you, you kind of uh, demonstrate or reveal this, this Buddhist uh, counter-modernism. Mm-hmm. Um, so could, could you talk a little bit about this aspect of the book? Um, what, what's the kind of broader conceptual intervention you, you're trying to make through this case study in, in terms of this idea of modernity and, and counter-modernity? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So, I mean, the the immediate project was to sort of to link, you know, late imperial studies with an area studies model, looking at the nation state and sort of thinking about ways of, you know, forms of social, political, religious imagination that really escape all of those, uh, you know, escape the national subject and which exceed the Qing, but in, but still understand the world in its frame. But in terms of a kind of a Buddhist studies audience, the book eventually ended up focusing on. Um, basically trying to, to provide a counterbalance to a really robust and interesting field of scholarship on what has been called, you know, Protestant Buddhism, Buddhist modernism. Um, among mostly progressive Buddhist thinkers trained in the European tradition, often in colonies um, or else in Imperial Japan, who were basically trying to reimagine the Buddhist tradition in ways that were very legible to the national subject, to um, science, democracy, um, uh, and so on. And this quote-unquote Buddhist modernism is the one that, you know, ends up circulating into Europe in many ways and is kind of adopted by converts, you know, in, in, in North America and Europe and elsewhere. Um, really important story, absolutely. But my question in this book is like, well, what else was happening among Buddhist thinkers who were at the same global crossroads, who were engaging the same globally circulating forms of knowledge, um, but who refused, actively refused the authority of science, refused the idea of nationalism, and, and were working outside of this of the national subject as a frame for thinking about religion, history, language. Um, I think this is a real black, like kind of black box. Uh, or blank place in our map as we're thinking about, you know, Buddhism plus modernity in Asia in the during the collapse of, you know, the Qing, um, uh, especially 
and also of other colonial uh, um, uh, kind of formations and what emerges from its ruins. So this idea of ruins becomes really important in my book, which has been studied in other, by uh, other scholars of colonialism. Um, but this idea of ruins as a set of often gendered possibilities um, that are sort of on the margins of emerging progressive kind of dominant visions of identity and history is really where my book dwells. And I think that for every one of these Buddhist modernists who's, you know, D.T. Suzuki or whoever, who's taught in an intro to Buddhism class, you know, there were there was a chorus of critics of those figures who we don't really know much about. Like, what were the terms um, by which they were understanding the quote-unquote turn to the modern, turn to nationalism, turn to revolution? Um, what other sort of topographies of the imagination were at play? And so my book is just a an ex, a kind of micro-historical exploration of one such example, but there are thousands. And I think the import is not only to understand, you know, Buddhist life in the upheavals of early 20th century Asia, but also there are kind of theoretical and methodological implications that have to do with the study of religion, the study of Asian religions generally, um, uh, as well, which, you know, my book explores um, in various ways. You know, you zoom in on this uh, Mongolian monk, uh, Zawa Damdin. Yes. And part of what, uh, I mean, he's a fascinating figure, but part of what makes him so interesting and really comes out in the, the translations you do uh, is the types of sources that mm. are available. Could you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what his oeuvre has provided you uh, in, in terms of kind of trying to understand his perspective? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's see. I mean, as I said before, this theme of synthesis, of synthetic scholasticism out of the Qing period is central. Um, but what you're referring to, in a way, is Zawa Damdin's position um, during the end of the Qing and in its the 25 years that followed of the circulation of um, various European um, mostly academic sources into the inner Asian monasteries. So whereas for two or three centuries before, Zawa Damdin's um, predecessors were, you know, encountering, say, Chinese dynastic histories and Confucian classics and, you know, things that had not been available to them as widely before the 17th century, as well as, you know, um, Copernican, um, you know, astronomy and Jesuit mathematics. There are there were some inklings of and and Christianity. There were some inklings of European culture that were kind of being brought in, um, but in the context of a radical, radical political and social turn to um, well to to the to nationalism, to uh, pervasive rhetoric of development, of social emancipation um, in 1911, and then you know, after 1917 to Soviet models of socialist emancipation um, and a real embrace of scientism, um, a whole flush of new sources are emerging and coming into um, these inter-Asian spaces uh, and in, to Mongo uh, into Zawa um, kind of institutions in Mongolia. And these include everything from like, you know, basically childhood, you know, textbooks on you know, introduction to science and the weather. Also, though, two early iterations of Buddhist studies from the Russian Buddhologists like Sherbatsky and Tubiansky, um, uh, work on Altaic linguistics, um, archaeology, you know, um, 
Silk Road discoveries, really importantly for Zawadandan. I mean, he's being shown pictures of, it's unclear whether it's, you know, Stein or Pelio, but one of some of these folks that were, you know, up digging out Buddhist um, statues and texts from um, uh, Central Asia. Um, uh, and, and even um, Zawadandan was in contact with a member of the Bakhtin Circle. While adamantly refusing their modernist projects and the proposals of progressive Buddhists around him to, for example, secularize the monastery, embrace scientific education, democratize, you know, social hierarchies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he was a global reader who was actively refusing many of the markers of the quote unquote modern that have been, you know, very much emphasized in Buddhist studies from this period. Um, and so that kind of takes takes us into new territory and requires new treatment and new kinds of narratives, in my in my opinion. Yeah, so this is, you know, very much a, um, you know, inner, I, I mean, I've been asked about this book by some who have said, how did this guy way out there in the frontiers of nowhere? But, you know, to be honest, if you're looking at these sources, I mean, that's an absolutely false margin, right? I mean, central, I mean, Mongolia, and Eastern Tibet, this 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 is a polylingual throughways for Eurasia, and it had been for thousands of years before. So really, this is a center for such, you know, um, you know, translation, synthesis, um, you know, boundary crossing, whatever, whatever you want to say. And Zawadamdin just happened to be a prolific writer of society at those crossroads um, during a really, you know, fascinating but ultimately bloody. Uh, period in in inner asia you structure the book in two two major parts which are under the headings of enchantment and disenchantment mm-hmm. um, terms of course that would be well known to to folks in religious studies mm-hmm. i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you uh use these categories in the narrative of your book mm-hmm. um and then how how does this two-part structure uh operate in your project, sure. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not using it in a as a sort of classical sociological sense exactly. Um, I'm using the terms in in the ways that Zawa Damden did, which w- had to do with a a kind of pervasive attention to presence or gel in uh, in Tibetan presence of the enlightened um, on the stage of the human and. Um, this will be familiar to anyone reading, you know, familiar with Inner Asia, reading Inner Asian sources. But for a wider audience, basically, this is just the idea that human history had been curated, in a sense, by in, enlightened figures, you know, Buddhas taking the, the the bodies of mostly men, whether they were, um, you know, monks or whether they were khans or kings or emperors, and this was the frame. Um, historical frame that Zawa Damden inherited from the Qing, where all history, whether it's Chinggis Khan or the Manchu emperors or King Ashoka in ancient India, these are these were all emanations of enlightened Buddhas purposefully intervening in the human uh, on the on the human stage, and not only teaching the Dharma but also you know enacting uh, laws and institutional forms, literacy. And all this kind of thing. So basically, if you were a monk historian working as Zawadamdan was, you were looking for traces and evidence of how the enlightened were appearing on the human stage. And so, you know, in examining about 1500 folios of his autobi- autobiographical writing and about 1500 
portfolios of his historical writing, uh, it became clear that Dawa Damdin understood his times in this frame of presence and absence of the enlightened. He never uses the word modernity. He never uses the word modernization. He never uses the word socialism or revolution. And as revolutionary events unfold, he's very careful to censor himself, I think, because those around others around him were being, you know, basically killed or imprisoned. Um, but the this language of presence and absence, um, which were, were, by the way, not tied to the arrival of a sort of Euro-centered um, notion of national formation and revolutionary emancipation. He actually sees all of those events as, you know, things that are being celebrated elsewhere as this sort of modernist awakening of inner Asia. He sees that all as simply, um, uh, you know, kind of symptoms of, of, a, of a decay <laughs> that had occurred earlier in the 19th century. So I won't give it away here or go down into the details. It's all in the book. But he comes up with a sort of global historical um, argument, I guess, for why social, religious, political bonds had come undone in the way that they had um, and in, in his lifetime. And, you know, by, by the time we get to his, his last works, which are his autobiogra- autobiography written just before he dies and just before many tens of thousands of monks around him were murdered, um, he's, he, he thinks that history has ended. Literally, history has ended. There's no language, no interpretive apparatus by which to know uh, the present no place wherein Buddhist monasticism could exist. Um, and there was no future for him uh, or for the world as he knew it. And that is sort of played out in a variety of ways that I, I explore in the book. Um, so yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's not you know, a sort of disenchantment as secularism or, or secularization or anything like that. Um, I sort of purposefully use the word to, to draw a contrast, which is, look, this is an entirely other model of writing the quote-unquote modern into time and place by those very much engaged in global currents but refusing terms issuing from the european enlightenment yeah it works it works well and certainly for people in religious studies uh, they'll kind of be drawn to that and then this uh contrast is is a little more striking hmm. um i'm wondering if you could just think for a moment about how you imagine uh, your colleagues in religious studies more broadly might benefit from the book. Those that aren't doing uh, Tibetan Buddhism or working on Asia, are there ways that they can apply uh, some of your conclusions or methodologies uh, that might be more relevant for for people working outside of your subfield? Yeah, I, I think that there are. I think that the book offers a, a really useful case study in the classroom because um, Zawadamdin's writing. Um, really confuses a lot of ways that we, uh, in the humanities generally and in religious studies specifically, kind of inadvertently, I think, teach uh, you know, history, world religions, and so on. And because Zawa Damdin is writing time and place and community and power in ways that are, have, have nothing to do with the public or private, do not in any way fit it into the religion, you know, into religion or political modernity or tradition, you know, stasis or progress, all these ways that basically we write the West, non-West difference in, in explicit or implicit ways. And of course, I'm not the first to point out the problems and limits of that, but there have not yet been many case studies from inner Asia that exemplify how that was working on the ground in rich detail. And 
part of my interest in the book and in my new book and in wider scholarship that I'm after in, in general is that, you know, these conversations that are familiar to us from, say, post-colonial studies or subaltern studies, and also, you know, in other scholarship on Buddhist modernism, these are often within the frame of the colonizer and the colonized, you know, um, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia or, or wherever, South Southeast Asia. But Inner Asia was never a colony of Europe. It was never beholden politically to Europe, to um, it never had that kind of relationship. And here, the, you know, there's a, I guess what I'm trying to do is to sort of center other interpretive ecologies, world historical orders, i.e. the Qing and its and its frontiers, uh, is also offering us ways of decentering, provincializing, kind of, you know, our, some of our categories that have all these colonial, uh, all this colonial baggage. And to not just understand, you know, the life of some monk in, in, in Mongolia in the early 20th century, but to really center the diversity of ways that the collapse of empire, the transition to the 20th century was understood uh, in place and time. And, you know, in the book, I try to draw as many lines as I can to um, to scholarship that has pushed back against, um, you know, the, the, the metaphysics of the modern, the pervasive rhetoric of progress, you know, all these sorts of things that um, we are good at naming as having Eurocentric genealogies. But we struggle more. We still struggle with doing our scholarship, doing our teaching outside of that frame. And I think that the more case studies like Zawa Domnans we can find, whether uh, you know uh, in in Latin America or in, in North America, among indigenous communities or whatever, um, then we can actually be finding models of history and agency in place that will allow us to diversify our teaching and to you know. Um, make some good trouble in our disciplines. And that's that was ultimately the point of, of my book and, and what I'm most interested in in thinking about inner Asia in, in these bigger frames. Yeah, that's great, Matt. And it was a real pleasure to read the book. Uh, congratulations okay. again on the award. And Thank thanks you. Thanks for making time to talk about it. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.